Do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can, and get with me to the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible, so turn to the back, and then uh, you you should be able to just thumb through a little bit and find it. We're in Revelation chapter 2, and in the Bibles that we have here, that'd be on page 991. 991. We are doing a series now called Resolve. We are allowing the voice of Christ to really shape the priorities that we have for this upcoming year. And we're looking then at these different letters that Christ gave to several different churches, and we're picking a handful of those that feel relevant to us, and we're saying, okay, if we're going to make any resolutions for this year, let them be shaped and informed by what Christ says. So for a church, as a church, we're saying for us, we want to hear what Christ has to say, and then we want to make our agenda for the year um, sync up with that. And so that's what we're doing. We're doing a series called Resolve. So I'm going to read the text, and then we'll pray, and we will get to work. This is Revelation chapter 2, chapter two starting in verse 1. It reads like this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those that claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Lord, we want to hear your voice right now. We know that your word is living and active, that you communicate to us through it by your Spirit. And so we've got Bibles open and hearts open and ears open. And our desire this morning and for the course of this year is that we would be a church that listens well to you. So help us, God, to hear right now and then help us to obey by faith what we find. Um, We want to be a church that's pleasing to you. We want to be a church that listens to you. Help us to do that, please, in your name. Amen. Amen. So we have an introduction. It's a letter, and it has that typical format, an introduction of who's speaking and who they're speaking to. And then in the middle, we find a a correction. So the introduction says, I know you guys. Here's some positive things about you. Yet, here's something that we need to pay attention to. And he gives a correction there in the middle. And then at the end, there's an invitation. There's an invitation to respond to what he is addressing and to make some adjustments and make some changes and become the kind of church that God wants us to be. So the introduction comes in verses 1 to 3. In verses 1 to 3, we see that the Lord himself is speaking to us. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, if you've read Revelation before, you know it's full of symbolism. There are different things that are going on, and if you're going to read it well, you have to sit with it and pay attention and think. Uh, But here we're being told that the Lord is the one who's speaking, and he's the one who holds in his hand seven stars, and he walks among these golden lampstands. And if you want to know what that has to do with, you just glance up. Because in chapter 1, he tells us what that means. In verse 20 of chapter 1, it says, 
the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Here's the point. He's introducing himself and he's saying, I am the Lord of the church. I am the one who in my hand, I have the power of the message of the authority. I I hold it in my hands. I am the one who walks among the churches, that I'm aware of what's going on. He's Lord of the church. And so what we need to understand then is that he's the one who gets to make the evaluation of us as a church because he's the Lord of it. He's the one who's in authority over it. He's the one who spoke it into existence. He's the one who gets to evaluate it. And so we need to listen. What does Jesus have to say to us? And a little bit later on in verse 6, he tells us that if we aren't responding by faith to what he's warning us about, that he will remove our lampstand. That he will take away this lampstand. Here's what he's saying. A church can stop being a church. That if we don't respond by faith to what he's calling us to be and do, he, he tells us this warning I will come and remove that lampstand. And you guys are aware, if you go to Asia Minor, to the, to the places of Ephesus and, and these other churches, you can find these big, beautiful buildings. And they have history, and they have you know, a heritage of these things that they, that they accomplished. They kind of represent the church during a certain period of time. But many of them now stand as historical markers, and they stand empty. And they remind us that there was a church there at one season, but that church failed to really listen to the voice of the risen Christ. And so now it's just a building. And that's true not only in Asia Minor, but it's true in other places as well. If you go to Europe and you go to major cities there, you can see these incredible buildings that stand empty. You can even do that in our town. You can drive around and you can see there, there are church locations where a vibrant congregation once met that they're no longer meeting there or they're just hanging on by a thread. And what we need to understand then is that we want to be the kind of church that, that listens to the evaluation of our Savior. That yes, we need to pay attention to attendance and giving and volunteerism and all these different things, but the metrics that we ought to be very concerned with are the ones that the Lord gives us. The one that Jesus issues, and here, he tells us this metric, and it surprised me. Here's what he really cares about, and you'll see it show up in just a minute. He looks at the church, and he says, here's the thing that I have against you. There's an absence of love. And I'll show it to you in just a minute, but that's the metric that we need to pay attention to. Are we the kind of church where there is a vibrant love for God and love for each other? Because if not, Jesus is going to show us here, then we're not healthy. We're not right. So we want to listen to this Lord, this one who holds the seven stars in his hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. We want to listen to what he has to say about us as the McChesney Park campus. What is his evaluation of us? And then whatever he says, we want to follow that. We want to have that resolve to say, Jesus is leading us in this direction. And for this season, we're going to pursue love. Because that's what he put before us as a key marker of what a healthy church truly is. So he's the speaker. He's speaking to the church in Ephesus. Um, in the, the very beginning, it says to the, you know, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write these words. The church in Ephesus, you, you can find out about its startup in Acts 19, where Paul goes there and he preaches the gospel and people hear that message and they respond by faith. 
and there's powerful things that are going on, and the gospel is so radical that it changes the city. In fact, the economy changes, because they lived in a place where there was worship of false gods, and, and they had um, people who would make these little shrines, these little um, uh, idols that they would sell to people. But when the gospel came to town, people were, they were, their lives were being so radically changed that they no longer worshipped false gods. And so that industry just collapsed. And Demetrius, one of the silversmith dudes, he was upset and he started a riot because you know, more and more people were following God. They were hearing about this good news of the gospel and committing their lives to Christ and changing the economy. And, and there was hostility then. So when Jesus speaks to this church, he's saying, I am fully aware of the challenges that you're facing. I am well aware of the resolve that you have to have just to be a church in that setting. And he praises them for some different things. He praises them, first off, for their hard work. Look at verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. He looks at the church and he says, I understand how hard it is that you're working. You're working yourself to the point of exhaustion. Now, I grew up on a tree farm, so I'm familiar with hard work. I know what it's like to put in a full day of physical labor and to get done with that work and to just kind of, you know, plop down and feel like I can't do anything else. I know what that feels like. And I know how gratifying that is. But I've come to find out that there's a work that's even more exhausting than physical labor. And here's what it is. It's ministry. There's a, there's a situation when you're engaged in caring for other people and trying to serve them and trying to do different things where you get soul tired. And so Jesus is saying to the church, I'm under, I, I understand where you live and what situation you're in, and I praise you for your work for the things that you're doing on behalf of the church and on behalf of other people, I'm well aware of how you're exerting yourself, doing these deeds, doing this hard work, and persevering. Now, for us as a campus, Jesus, I think, would say the same thing to us. He would look at our church and he would say, I understand how hard it is for you to meet in a public school, for you to be portable, for, for people to have to show up first thing in the morning, for a trailer to have to come in, and all these cases get offloaded, and then everything gets set up, and everything kind of gets set in their places, and this happens very early in the morning, and then, and then people start showing up, and different team members start showing up, and, and uh, you know, we have to staff everything, we've got a rehearsal, we've got a 9 o'clock service, a 10.30 service, we've got a huge amount of adults in our congregation who volunteer on a regular basis like an absurd percentage compared to other churches. And Jesus would say to us, I know the sacrifices that you're making. I see it. I understand what it takes simply to get that time together with the people of God. I see that. I, I commend that. I recognize that. I praise that. He not only sees the work that goes into just gathering together, but the significant ministry that happens away from here. Ministry can't be contained in an hour. There are 168 hours in a week, and many of you are caring for each other, praying for each other, counseling each other, having spiritual conversations throughout the week, and it is emotionally exhausting. And Jesus is able to look at you and say, I see all of that. I understand what you're going through, and I commend that. I love your hard work. I love what you're up to. Not only your work, but also your commitment to holiness. Look at verse 2. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. 
In verse 6, he goes on to say, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, a group of false teachers. And he says, I also hate that. And he's saying, I see all of that. I see your commitment to the truth, that you want to be a community that's built around the word of God. And, and we understand that there are elements of this that are unpopular. We understand that there are versions of Christianity that are false. And, and he's commending the Ephesian church for their commitment to that truth. And they were, they were resolved on this one. In fact, one, one, uh, one guy named Ignatius, in the first century, he wrote this, but he was talking about the church in Ephesus. They were so well taught that they didn't tolerate any form of false teaching. So he writes like this, you all live according to the truth and no heresy has a home among you. He looked at this early church and, and this historian, this guy named Ignatius, he said, you guys are committed to the truth. And Jesus says, I celebrate that. I commend that. If you have a love for the things of God and a passion for his truth, that is a, that's a noble thing. That's a desirable thing. Verse 3 goes on to say, You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So as a church, Jesus might be saying that over us. You guys work hard. You love truth. You're committed to these things. You're persevering in them. And that's all in the introduction as we're learning who the Lord is and who the church is. But then he moves to a correction in verse 4. He's able to say, I can appreciate all of that about you, yet here's something you need to be aware of. I am not okay with the absence of love. You, you work hard, you care about truth, you persevere in these things, yet if there isn't love, the church is not what it's supposed to be. Look with me at verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Here's what's going on. Jesus is speaking to the Ephesian church and to us, and he's looking and he's, he's able to say, there's so much about you that I appreciate. There's so much about you that I notice and I care for. But here's a problem. If there's an absence of love, you are not functioning as the church ought. If, if love isn't a major priority, a reality in the life of the church, then the church isn't doing what it's called to do. It's, not, it's, it's actually in danger of becoming not a church, which is what he says in verse 6 when he threatens to take away the lampstand. A church has to have love, or it is nothing. A church has to be able to love God and love people, or it's nothing. The Apostle Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but I don't have love, I am nothing. And we can apply that to the church as well. We can do all kinds of things, great things in the name of Christ, but if we are missing that key component of love, it really is nothing. It's, it's not what it's supposed to be. It is a deformity. And so we need to be the kind of place where love is a priority for us. And it doesn't tell us you know, who the object of love is, so I'm okay with saying it's both loving God and loving people. When somebody asked Jesus, hey, what's the greatest commandment? He answered this way in Matthew 22. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with, your, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. He's telling us, Jesus himself is saying, 
at the very foundation of what it means to be a, a follower of God, a believer in God, is that you would love God and you would love your neighbor. This is what the whole entirety of Scripture is all about. So we need to be a church that says we are committed to this reality, to loving God and to loving each other. So our love for God must be at the very foundation of all that we do. Love for God should be something that we say, we will ditch all of our initiatives, we'll stop doing everything. If we're not loving, then we're going to just put all of our energy and all of our time into figuring out how to, how to reboot that, how to get love going for God. And I think that when you love God, it shows up. I was, I was asking the question, what, what does it look like to love God? And I think the truth is, if you love God, you start to worship him, not just you know, on Sunday mornings, but your life be- becomes an expression of worship. You're always thinking about him. You're always reflecting on what he wants to do. You become a worshipful person. And it shows up in your attitudes. I think when you love God, it shows up in the way that you handle situations and the disposition that you have. You become a I would say a joyful person. Um, when you're loving God, you should have this joy about you. Even when things feel and look like they're falling apart, you still have this love for God that spills out in joy. And if there's an absence of joy, I'm, I'm willing to say it's not healthy. It's not right. David Sitton, he's the director of a, a mission organization, and he told a story one time about one of the conferences that they put on for missionaries. And he said that they invited this really, really old missionary. He was something like 92 years old, had been a missionary for 70-something years. And they invited him to come and and be one of the keynote speakers to this group of of aspiring and younger missionaries. And he, he said that the message was very short, but it was so good. And the old man, the old missionary gets up there and he begins to share. And he really just had one point in his message. And it, was, it came to this conclusion where he said, saying to the missionaries, aspiring missionaries, the joy of the Lord is your strength. If the joy goes, your strength goes. If we don't have love that shows up in our attitudes so that we're joyful people, we can be doing all of this different work and we can be persevering in it. But isn't it true that we get a little grumpy and we get a little irritable and we get a little impatient with people. And then we look at the activities that we're engaged in. We're doing ministry. We're trying to serve people. But we're just doing it with the spirit of, I don't like this. If the joy goes, the strength goes. We have to learn how to love God so that it shows up in all that we do. So that every activity that we're engaged in, we're, we're enjoying it. We're loving it. We're, be, we're being fed life by the spirit because we're doing the work of our risen Savior. We have to, we have to love God. That has to be at the foundation. The second thing is that we have to love other people. I think you can say you love God, but it needs to show up in how you deal with other people. Around here, we call it gospel culture. We really do believe that love for God needs to show up in the culture of our gatherings and how we hang out together. So if somebody comes in, they ought to feel that they're being cared for, that they're being dealt with as a person, that we're listening to what's going on with them and what's the, concern, you know, the concerns of their heart. And, and we're caring for them and we're meeting them where they're at and we're loving them and we're, we're doing things to try to serve them. We need to be a place where God's love for us spills out in love for other people. The author that wrote down these letters in Revelation, John, he, he wrote some other books as well. And he wrote this letter called First John. 
And the whole premise of that letter, I think, is that he, he's saying love for God must be complemented by love for real people. If you claim to love God, but then you start dealing with other Christians in an unloving way, your love for God is deformed. It's, it's not right. A true and sincere love for God and his truth will spill out in love for other people. So as a church, we need to recognize we can't just care for truth. We have to also care for people. And if we don't learn how to bring those things together, it actually becomes ugly. Because we become brutal with the truth and we look at other people and we're, we get judgy and condemning and we get self-righteous because we're trying so hard. And we start to beat other people up. And Jesus is saying here, I appreciate your concern for truth, but let's be sure that it's complemented by this love for God and for people. Otherwise, it's not right. Francis Schaeffer, he put it like this, and um, I, I, I think this is a really, a really, really important point for us to understand. This quote has stuck with me over the years. He said, biblical orthodoxy, a passion for truth as it's presented. He said, biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. When you love truth, but you don't love people, it's ugly. It actually distorts the truth that you claim to love because you're not accurately displaying how God is. God is correcting us here. He's saying, as a church, we don't just want to be concerned with truth, which we should. We want truth that's wrapped in love. And so what does he do then? He invites us to this way of life. In verses 5 to 7, there's an invitation. He's saying, now that you're aware that this is something you need to pay attention to, here's how we can move into that. Here's how we can embrace this. And the first thing he says to do is to repent. Look at verse 5. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. He's saying, think back on what it was like when you first became a Christian. Consider what it was like when, you know, it's like when you first fall in love and, and you just, you can't stop daydreaming about this person. And you just, you know, everything that you do is informed by that reality. And he's saying, when you first became a Christian, think about what that was like. You had this incredible love for God and it spilled out in love for people and it was just all over the place. And he's saying, think about that. You have fallen away from that. And now you need to repent. You need to Stop doing what you're presently doing and you need to turn toward God. You need to repent. You need to do the things that you did at first. So repentance is when we're able to own, I'm not loving the way that God wants me to love. And I'm going to acknowledge that. I'm going to own that. And I'm going to stop doing things this way so that I can go back to loving God and loving people. Um, Let me try to help you out here because I know that a lot of times when we do repentance or apologies, we don't actually do it. Sometimes when, when we're repenting, we want to qualify our repentance. And, and I don't think that's helpful here. So if I apologize to my wife and I say, Ash, I'm really sorry uh, that I did this, that I made you feel this way, but, and then I begin to fill in why I behaved the way that I did, is that apology sincere? No. I'm justifying myself, but I'm cloaking it in an apology. I'm sorry, but... Here's what you did that made me respond that way. We do that with God as well. We say, yeah, God, I'm not loving as I should, but look at these jokers. How am I supposed to love them? We, you know, we, we, we excuse ourselves. We, we justify ourselves and we say, 
you know what? Yes, we should be more loving, but look at how we're doing church. It's really hard to love people the way we do it. That's not a sincere repentance. That's actually just complaining. We need to stop complaining about the church and embrace that Jesus has a better agenda for us. And we need to start saying, I love these people. I love this bride. I'm moving toward her. I'm moving toward them because that's what Jesus wants for me. We need, to, we need to stop complaining about the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor during the time of Nazi Germany, and he gave his life for his faith. But he wrote a very, very important book, and it's called Life Together. And a lot of the concepts there have really shaped the way I think about community. And, and I'm slow dripping this stuff into the life of our church because it's so important. But one of the things we have to be careful about is Jesus is inviting us to repent, and that is different than complaining or lobbying for change. Repentance is just when we own the fact that we're supposed to love other people. So Bonhoeffer, he puts it like this when he's talking about the tendency in Christians to complain about their churches. He said, if we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even where there is no great experiences, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, and difficulty, if on the contrary we only keep complaining We only keep complaining that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected. Then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us all in Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying. A lot of times we don't repent. Instead, we just complain. We know that we're supposed to love, but then we look at the way the church is and we say, the reason why I'm not loving is because the church does this to me. Jesus here is inviting us not to complain, not to lobby for change, but to, but to be the change. To repent and say, I'm going to love other people. I'm going to figure out how to love God and love other people in this fellowship. Because this is where God has placed me. This is my community. These are the people that I'm called to love and serve and care for. And I want to figure out how I can love. Um, and so it's an invitation to repent and to go back to the basics, to do the things that you did before. Spend time with other believers and worship together and read the scriptures and engage in spiritual disciplines because that's the way that you can reignite your passion for the things of Christ. But we need to repent. That's the invitation. It says in verse 5, he warns us, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. If we don't, if, if we don't acknowledge the absence of love and do something about it today, we're in trouble. If our church doesn't become a place where love is cherished and prioritized, we're in trouble. And if we never do anything about that, then the church just goes away. Jesus says, I'll remove my lampstand. We'll shut down shop. We won't do do church anymore. If we're not willing to say, love is a priority in this church, in this fellowship. Verse 7, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We need to hear the voice of Christ right now and respond accordingly. But then he gives us an incredible promise in verse 7. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is a really incredible promise. There's a group that really cares about the truth, the Ephesus church, and he's saying you really want things to be right. You're listening to God. You're paying attention. You're exerting yourself. You're, you're passionate about the truth. You're careful about errors. You're doing all these different things. But here's what he's really getting at. If you're not loving, 
you're not really in a relationship with God, who is love. You can be murderous, just like when, when Adam and Eve left paradise because they turned inward and they made it about themselves. And, and they, they had to leave paradise and the, the cherubim were placed there to guard the entryway back. And what happened? They had some kids and right away those kids got into Cain and Abel. They got into a conflict. One of them murders the other one. And, and we see if, if Jesus is inviting us here, here's the promise. If you learn how to love, if you love God and love people, he's saying to the one who's victorious, I will give to them the right to come and eat from this tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I will, I will admit them into the most incredible experience ever that any human being could ever have to be right with God, to walk in the cool of the day with God himself and to walk in harmony with one another. That's what it really looks like to cherish truth and to love God and love people. He's saying that's what we have in store. That's the promise to the healthy church, and I want to be that kind of church. So would you join me in praying? We're going to ask right now that the Holy Spirit would help us to love. Lord, um, the things we've been talking about this morning feel heavy, and I'm well aware that there are people in here who truly do love, and, and we celebrate that, and we want to see more and more of it. But God, we also want to be honest about where we're at right now. And we as a church have a long ways to go on this front. We want to grow in our ability to love you and love other people. And maybe we're in a season right now where we've been so busy doing work that we've failed to realize what we're neglecting, which is our relationship with you and how that affects our relationship with others. And so Lord, would you help us to hit reboot today? Would you help us to reprioritize the, the importance of love? And God, could this year be a year where anybody who wanders in here would feel cared for and loved and heard? Would you help us to be a community of faith where it is a gospel culture, where people experience the risen Christ through real relationships with other flesh and blood people? Help us to be that kind of church. And today, help us to make those adjustments necessary. So we're going to worship you right now, God, and, and we're worshiping you, acknowledging that you're going to, by your spirit, help us. So thank you for that gift, and thank you for the promise. In Jesus' name, amen.